After graduating from Stanford, Isabel chose to work at an exciting early stage startup. Having experiences at McKinsey and Google under her belt, why did she leave the corporate world to join the startup ecosystem? And how does Isabel's experience as an operator inform her decision-making as an investor at one of the strongest early-stage venture capital firms in the world? And stay tuned to find out what business Isabel would start tomorrow. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Office Hours with Dormroom Fund. My name is Daniel Abul-Hassan, and I'm here joined with my co-host, Andrew Shu. And today we have on Isabel Joe. Isabel is an investor and chief of staff at Floodgate, one of the leading early stage venture capital firms of the last decade, with a portfolio including the likes of Lyft, Twitch, Twitter, Okta, and many, many more. Previously, Isabel joined the founding team at Nooks and has worked at McKinsey, Google, and was managing partner at the Dormroom Fund. Isabel, we are so excited to have you here. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Dormroom Fund community is always awesome, so I'd like to be back. So without further ado, let's just get straight into it. At first, we're going to start with your time at Dormroom Fund. One of the main things you launched was the female founder track. What was the process of launching that from idea to reality? Any similarities to your time at Nooks? Yeah, so I actually joined Dormroom Fund with the intention of doing something to help the female founder community. Um, so the summer before I even joined Dormroom Fund, I was ideating on building a community for female founders that helps increase access to information, investors, and anything you need basically to raise your first round of funding. And when I first got connected to Dorm Room Fund, I learned that they had this program called Female Founder Track. So it was almost an immediate fit for me. I thought it was a good idea to leverage the student network. Um, students are also early in their career. So it's an opportunity to have the biggest possible impact on the next generation of female founders. In terms of how that came about, um, so I've been entrepreneurial for as long as I can remember. Honestly, since third grade, when I was trying to start my own like series of lemonade stands on the street. And the main roadblock for me was when I first came to Stanford as a freshman, it was my first exposure to Silicon Valley. I had all these ideas, but absolutely no idea how to start. So I'd go to all of these events held by VCs on Stanford's campus. And I'd look around and the ratio of men to women was probably 10 to one. And I just thought it was so ridiculous. There's so many talented female founders out there, but unfortunately these networks of information, of funding, of friendships are all super male dominated. So I thought, why not start a program that can close this gap if every single person in the room was also a woman and if we could bring access to these networks to these female students who are starting companies for the first time, then it could be a really good way to help close the gender gap. So that's kind of the inspiration behind Female Founder Track. And Dormroom Fund, obviously, was one of the best platforms out there to help student founders. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, we love the Female Founder Track and what it's doing, and it's going to continue growing. We're looking to create some amazing content around it this, this spring as well. Uh, kind of transitioning into your time at Nooks, you know, what stuck out, stuck out to Andrew and I was, you know, you were working at McKinsey and Google. You had these, like, you know, big corporate experiences that offer, you know, really great pay and a built-in social life. What kind of motivated you to take a job at an early stage startup instead of working at these traditional companies? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, and I feel like this is something that's an experience that's relatable by a lot of first-generation immigrants. So for context, my parents came to the U.S. in their late 20s, and I was kind of the first generation to be here in the U.S. Um, so growing up, I was always taught, like, you know, choose a safe route, um, choose success, like, optimized like financial stability um, and just career stability. 
So that was the initial impetus for me to try out these different fields like product management, consulting, at these funds that were, or these firms that were pretty well known. Um, however, I think I realized halfway through my McKinsey internship that while I enjoyed the work, I felt like it wasn't super impactful. I think I'm more of a mission-driven person and I wanted to drive my own adventure and drive my own startup and try to make an impact on people from my perspective instead of kind of feeling like, you know, one of many people who are just part of a larger system that creates no amount of impact on pre-established companies. I want to be there and just carve out my own path. Um, and at the end of the day, I realized that, you know, like it's great to have financial stability. It's great to have like these safety nets, but ultimately I think being able to lean into uncertainty um, and choosing this brave path to carve out my own route can also lead to really successful outcomes. And I'll also personally feel more fulfilled. So it was just, it was a pretty easy decision at the end of the day was whether I went along the beaten path or kind of carved out my own risk-taking path that might also align more with my own values and my own mission. Um, and when the right opportunity come, came up, in this case, it was a bunch of college friends who I thought were the smartest people I knew in my grade were launching a company together. It just felt like the perfect opportunity to jump ship and join them. That all makes perfect sense. So digging a bit more into your decision to join Nooks, you wrote a piece on Medium about that move where you asked several questions to yourself before joining Nooks. And one of them was, how will I measure personal success decoupled from business outcomes? Since writing that piece and being a part of Nooks, have you found that your answer to that question has changed over time? A hundred percent. I think I define personal growth before I joined Nooks in very standard corporate terms, like Am I getting promoted? Um, am I increasing my skill sets? Am I like having a good mentor? Do I have a good mentor? Can I grow as a person? And I think after working with Nux and working in that unstructured environment, I'm starting to realize like growth doesn't all have to be external. It doesn't have to be based on like what title you have. It doesn't have to be based on what projects you're taking on, but rather growth can also be do I feel like I've learned a lot? Has my mindset or perspective on something changed? Um, and that was a bit of my impetus to just continue at Nooks and eventually join Venture because it helped me optimize for that type of intangible learning, growth, soft skills that might not necessarily be as easy to obtain in the corporate world. Last question about Nooks. What is the craziest thing you or someone on your team had to do to keep keep Nooks alive and growing, especially being such early stage with about like seven, sub seven of you when you started. Any crazy story? I think one of the crazier stories is, so at Nooks, we decided to all actually like live really close to each other. We rented out this one massive apartment building in San Francisco. There was like five or six apartment units and we decided to just all book out the top two floors and all live together. Um, the idea behind that is it would help build a sense of community. We can all work together. We can be close to friends. Um, obviously, this kind of setup wouldn't work once we expanded. Um, but just at that one starting point, the fact that we could literally just go downstairs, knock on someone's door, um, it does, it felt a little bit crazy in a moment because I always thought there is an importance of having work-life balance. Um, and I thought, this is a bit crazy. We're all living together. It feels like a giant college dorm. Um, but it turns out there were a number of benefits. We were able to have work-life balance. Um, you know, when it's time to go off work, we'll like go back to our own lives. Um, 
but renting out that house was one of the crazier experiments that we've done while at Nooks. Okay, so you know, while we transitioned from your time at Nooks to venture, you know, what was the calculus behind leaving Nooks to join Floodgate and moving from an operating role at a startup to being an investor? Yeah, so there were a few factors. So primarily along the lines of culture and personal growth. This kind of relates to being a female in a male-dominated field. Um, and I reached a point where I was only I was the only woman on the team. Um, and there's a lot of other men and the kept, team kept growing and it was all male. Um, I de definitely tried to help recruit more females, but just due to the nature of the industry and the gender ratio, it was becoming really hard for us to do it. Um, and having all lived together, I eventually thought like, I really love my experience at Nooks. Um, but I think in terms of fostering personal growth, what really mattered to me was having a strong female mentor um, and being able to thrive in a culture that had more voices like me. Um, so while I still really do love the Nooks team, I decided maybe it was better for me to like having spent about a year and a half, almost two years at this company to just move on um, and explore another opportunity that can help me grow faster. And that was the culture aspect of things. Um, in terms of personal growth, at a startup with people around your own age, you really only learn by doing. So by running experiments, by communicating with customers, by trying to figure things out on your own with maybe help from a few mentors. Um, I wanted to kind of accelerate that level of personal growth. If I could actually just go to the venture world, get a bird's eye view of what's going on in the ecosystem um, and learn not just by doing, but actually by following people might be more ahead of me in my career by talking with founders who I look up to, it was just an opportunity for me to grow faster. So you touched on female mentorship. And of course, I think that brings us to Amira Ko, who right before we started recording, I was talking about how my sister took a class with her at Yale and she was in a class with about 15 bankers at the time. But after Amira Ko came and spoke with her class, about half of them wanted to go into venture. So I think she's been a huge inspiration to many people and would love to hear you talk about your experiences working with Anne so closely within these past few months. Yeah, so she is absolutely one of the most inspiring people I've met. Similar to your sister's experience, I actually first heard about her when I was a freshman at Stanford and I went to a series of talks on, this, on the startup ecosystem. I believe she was mentioned actually multiple times as a female investor who is like changing the game of startups. So I have kind of followed her since then. Um, and being able to work with her on a day-to-day -day basis is a really good way for me to learn. Um, if anything, she has this ability to just talk with founders, be empathetic to their situation, and also provide really useful insights. And it's a skill that I want to have. Um, and it's always good to be able to work with someone who might be a few decades ahead of me in terms of career experience, just so I can know the way she operates, how high powered she is, and just feel inspired um, thinking that like, if she can do it, they're definitely like, maybe I can do it. And like, there are definitely other women who are able to follow in those steps and get to where she is. So what has been the biggest takeaway you've gotten so far working in venture that has changed the way you see the industry now that you're an investor? Yeah, what surprised me is just the pure speed of decisions that are being made. So coming from the startup world, when I was building Nooks, we're kind of super laser focused on one problem. And if you want to figure out like one like strategy with go to market, we spent like two weeks really diving into it and brainstorming everything and figuring it out. 
adventure sometimes, like within a 45 minute meeting, you kind of have to make a snap judgment. Do we invest this in this company or not? Do we bring them to the next level of diligence or not? Um, and oftentimes like you're switching between like different sectors every meeting. So we might be talking to like a Web3 creator comp- company and then an hour later, we're talking to someone in healthcare. So just being able to shift gears super quickly and just get really deep on what a company might be doing and what its future might look like within 45 minutes is something that's definitely been a shock to me, like how fast judgments are made. Um, It's also taught me like coming from the founder world, it's so important to be empathetic. Like if you're turning down an opportunity to invest, that might be someone's like life mission or life goal that they've been working on for a year. Um, Like how do you communicate that judgment knowing that you've only had 45 minutes in their world when they've been operating and living and breathing that world for the longest time. Yeah, I think we grew up in a new kind of ecosystem where deals are happening at speeds that we've just never seen before. And so I think for the longest time, Floodgate has really prided itself on taking a lot of time looking into each company, diving really deeply and working with founders and making sure it's the right fit. But now with compressed timelines, how does Floodgate remain competitive against some of these other firms that are moving extremely quickly and coming back with decisions in you know, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it might be? That's a good question. I think coming from a product background, um, I think Sean mentioned in an earlier product episode that a lot of VCs really have to think about their venture investment as a product. Um, so one way to differentiate, obviously, is like speed to making a decision. Um, for us, like if we have to operate in a situation where we need to make a decision quickly, we will absolutely do it because it's the founder that comes first. Um, something else that we do right now is we make a fairly limited number of investments every year um, and makes only two to five. And because we make so few, like Anne really has an opportunity to work hands-on with anyone that we invest in and be there as a partner who meets with you once a week, once every two weeks at a regular rhythm to really make sure that your company takes off. So as an example, Nooks was actually one of Floodgate's portfolio companies. And we would meet with Anne once every two weeks to really just talk through everything that's happening in our business and really have just a very supportive partner and cheerleader in her. Um, Something else that I personally think is going to be a major differentiator going forward is because there are just so many early stage venture funds and there are so many new startups popping up every day, what could be helpful is if we move to kind of like a supportive incubator model before companies even start raising. Um, so at Flutty, we run a number of programs like Outlier, Reactor, where we target some of the brightest builders, students that we can find on college campuses and help them give the initial nudge to start building their own companies. And if we can keep in touch with them and really be that resource uh, for them instead of just being dollars into converted into equity, then it is a way to help not only like build the companies that we want to see in the world, but also offer something to companies that they might not ordinarily get. That's actually really interesting using that as a competitive edge in this world where everyone else is trying to figure out what their space is in early stage investing. Um, So given your experiences working on the operational side and Nooks, what lesson of discovering what's signal versus noise when it comes to chasing product market fit have you taken with you at Floodgate? Because you guys tend to invest in a lot of companies before they've even reached product market fit. So I used to have a good answer to this just based (laughs) on my limited experience with one company. 
But having spent some time in adventure world, I'm starting to realize it is really just so different for every single company out there. Um, if anything, when a company is pre-product market fit, we aren't so much looking for signals that show that the company is going to get to product market fit because what are the pivot industries? The signals are going to change drastically, but rather if we can see signs that a company is super nimble, able to run experiments, um, able to just think creatively and critically on their feet in terms of testing what might work. So as an example, um, I think at Nooks, we're still trying to figure out what product market fit exactly looks like for us. Um, but something that we did is that we, I think when we first started Nooks, we offered our product for free to all college campuses. Um, and we just wanted this as a way for us to first get exposure to users, to understand what they think of our product and just begin our initial market testing. Um, one of the signals that we got from there is the moment we kind of pivoted our product and adjusted our interface to be more focused towards enterprise rather than schools, we got a ton of angry emails from these professors and TA saying like, we love Nooks, we use it so much. Like, why the heck would you change this one feature to like, you know, help an enterprise customer? And we think having that really strong product love was a good signal for us in that specific company, in that specific market. So obviously things look really different in different markets. Um, but if a team is willing to run these experiments in a really systematic way with metrics that track what's going on, um, then I think it's a strong signal that the team has what it takes to get on the road to product market fit. Looking at that in a broader sense of like the VC industry as a whole, I think you gave a really great philosophy of how like a company approaches product market fit. But what's your philosophy about VC and things that you believe to be true? that might get overlooked by others? This could be like some soft skills, some more technical skills, anything you believe is getting overlooked by many. Well, I haven't been in this industry for too long, um, but one thing that I think comes in handy is you're gonna hear this over and over again, but founder empathy. Um, even if a founder is like not a fit for you know your funds investing thesis because their company might be in a different sector than you invest in, I think it's just important to actually like become friends with whoever you're talking to, um, not in like a super networky way, but just to get to know founders at a personal level. Um, like one thing a lot of VCs, especially those who haven't been founders before, overlook is just how many mental hurdles founders have to jump through. Um, like the journey of being a founder is not easy. There's definitely a lot of existential crises. There's definitely a lot of like mental moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so being really able to put yourself in the founder's shoes, I think it's something that the VC industry tends to overlook. I think there's definitely people out there, um, definitely not anyone at Floodgate, but people who just kind of look at deals as like names on paper, you look at the metrics and decide yes or no without really understanding the human behind them. Um, so I think it's important just to be able to step in a founder's shoes. Yeah, totally. Now, I know you're saying being in a founder's shoe, if I were in Isabel's shoe and I were to start a business tomorrow, what would that business be? Well, if we're not thinking venture skill, I would definitely yeah. just start a bakery. Um, I have a hobby of baking cakes. Might as well bring joy to the world. I'd probably sell everything at a loss um, just because I think cakes and carbs make people happy. Um, but yeah, in terms of what's venture skill, still working through it, I do want to definitely spend the next few years in venture to understand what's out there before starting another company.
We were super glad to hear the baking, the bakery answer. We, we were looking at some of your, uh, your uh, cupcakes on your website before, really great stuff. Kind of, you know, going off that, like, what's your favorite Taylor Swift song? Yeah, it's hard. Uh, 1989 is really what got me into Taylor. Like, I've always liked her before, but after I heard that album, like, wow, she can span genres. This is like a generation-defining artist, and I was totally into it. That's very interesting, because I feel like a lot of Swifties for the longest time really wanted her to stay country, and 1989 was that shift for them. But yeah, that's cool to hear. So um, you know, this was the first year that you sent a personal year in review, right, to your peers, your mentors, your educate, like all those people. So what was like one of the most impactful stories or feedback that you've received from a peer, mentor, or friend? Yeah, of course. Um, so to give further context to anyone who might be listening, um, I started sending out this year in review to around 100 to 150 people who positively impacted my life. Um, so this is anywhere from elementary school teachers to close friends, to people I just meet in the workplace. Um, it's an overview reflection of what the year has been. Um, at the end, I always asked for like a one-liner reply just so I can hear what people are up to. Um, one of the best things that came in is from one of my mentors. Um, he used to work in global product marketing at Uber. Now he's at Cameo, but he's always been a source of inspiration all the way throughout college. I think I talked a lot in my year in review about learning to embrace uncertainty. He mentioned that like, it's really important to be able to like take this brave route and lean into uncertainty because, and I quote, the more comfortable you are and have the confidence to embrace that uncertainty, the more amazing things you can achieve. Um, and he actually suggested to like focus on having a high but not unrealistic bar for yourself and prioritize impact you have on others. So just being able to think on my own terms, um, lean into bravery and not be trapped, like I mentioned, by you know, external expectations. Am I getting promoted? Am I going the right corporate route? Um, but rather carve out on your own route and focus on my impact. Um, that's one of the tips that I got in one of my replies on the year in review. Awesome. So that's very similar to you talking about taking calculator risk when you're early in your career and making decisions that, and I quote from one of your blog pieces, seem big in the moment, but don't actually matter that much, end quote. And I think a lot of us can resonate with that, you know, making decisions that seem really, really large in the moment, but in retrospect, maybe aren't. So do you have any examples that feed into that idea or even the other way around where it's decisions that don't seem like they matter that much in the moment, but end up having a disproportionate impact on your career or life? I think it's mostly the serendipitous decisions that have made a bigger impact in my life. Um, I definitely applied to dorm room fund on a whim. Um, I think it was literally the night before applications were due. And I was like, why not just write something? Um, and that has opened my world so much. Like being part of this community of people who I really look up to and I can learn from has just changed the way I think about a lot of things. I don't think I would have attempted to work on Nooks if I hadn't been part of Dorm Room Fun and been encouraged by these people who kind of go against the grain that it's totally accepted. It's even celebrated to go out and like, not do my regular job offers um, and go work on a company like that. Um, so I guess long story short, like one moment that definitely had a disproportionate impact is just me sitting down, watching Netflix, seeing an email from Dorm Room Fun, realizing a deadline is in like four hours, writing something and submitting it. That's just definitely changed my life for the better. Okay, great. I think it's nice to kind of close out on the Dorm Room Fun. So last question here, 
you know, you've been such a huge part of the dorm room fund community, especially while you were, you know, part of college. Do you have any advice or things that you'd like to see happen with the dorm room fund? I think it's been a wonderful community. Um, I love to see female founder track continue going because it's kind of my baby and something I'm passionate about. Um, and I'm not much. I just, I think the community is wonderful. If we can just keep that going, meet in person a lot, become good friends. It'll be an amazing community for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Isabel. We really appreciate it. On behalf of Andrew and I and the Dorm Room Fund, thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Office Hours. To get in touch with Isabel, we've included her info in the show notes. To learn more about DRF, visit our website at dormroomfund.com. We'll see you back here next week.